and welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership interview series 5 by 5 In this series, we'll meet some incredible experts across a range of fields and we'll ask for their top tips to thrive and find joy in leadership. So whether you're out for a walk, you're on your daily commute, or you've found a few minutes to yourself and you're having what today's guest would refer to as a piccolo tall or grande break, Enjoy these conversations. Keep a notebook handy so that you can capture some of those top tips. So today I'm joined by Dr. Christy Goodwin, and we are going to talk about the top five things to avoid digital overload. Welcome, Christy. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you. It is great to be here, and I'm glad you suggested that listeners take notes. Uh, there is a phenomenon called digital dementia, and many people think of this have a hunch that their memory-making capacity is shrinking, and a lot of females are blaming perimenopause or menopause. That can be a contributing factor, but the reality is for all of us, males and females, we are finding it harder to remember information. Um, I don't know about you, Melissa, but I suffer from infobesity, just feeling like there is just a constant oversaturation of information coming to me. So we know that actually a really simple way to counteract that is to write things down, you know, type them, put them in a Google Doc, put them in your calendar, because our memory-making capacity is most certainly shrinking. And you're not imagining it, and it's not necessarily a sign of old age. I haven't even told the audience who you are and in the first 30 seconds you've reassured me, you've let me know that I'm not alone and it's not it's not abnormal that I can't seem to remember as much as I thought I used to. Let me share who you are. So Dr Christy Goodwin is an award-winning digital wellbeing and productivity expert. She's just released her book, which I want to encourage everybody to um, have a look at, Dear Digital, We Need to Talk, and it could not be more perfectly timed. You know, I love that this book is a guilt-free guide to taming your tech habits and thriving in a distracted world. And it's not about a digital detox. It's not about throwing away your laptop and it's not about cancelling Netflix. So our conversation takes place at a time when senior women are opting out of the workforce in alarming numbers and citing two main reasons, one being burnout and the other being lack of opportunity. Against that backdrop, Christy, I just wanted to ask you, you know, why has our digital load escalated so dramatically and why does it matter that we tame it? Look, all of us have seen an exponential growth in our digital reliance. Um, and I think the pandemic most certainly accelerated that. But I also think it's important to acknowledge that this was beginning before the pandemic. We can't blame all of this on the pandemic. And I think a couple of things are happening. I think one of the chief things that are happening um, is that we as humans have started to use technology both professionally and personally, and let's face it, those boundaries have become obliterated in the last couple of years, but our digital habits are being um, formed in such a way that they are completely incongruent with how we are designed as humans. As humans, we have a biological blueprint. We have some biological constraints that we can't outperform. I often say we cannot outperform our biology. Mm -hmm. And we have adopted over time some really unhealthy digital practices multitasking, working for long stretches without a break, um, always being on. And we know this issue is particularly pertinent um, to females. There's some research on the gender wellbeing gap and significantly more females than males are experiencing burnout at both an employee and a leadership level. Um, and we know that this perceived need to be responsive. I call it digital presenteeism. We want to see, be seen from an optics perspective to be replying to the emails or replying to the Teams chats. And so all of these things combined, I think, are leading to 
digital burnout. Um, many people um, are not only, I, I, I'm going to say there's two things happening. The first thing that our tech habits have done is they've added a whole lot of little micro stresses. Now on their, their own, these micro stresses would be quite harmless. They'd be quite benign. You know, multitasking, you know, hearing alerts and notifications, permeating your day, working for long stretches, video calls, all of those things on their own would be harmless. But cumulatively, they are adding to our stress and unresolved stress results in burnout. So that's the first thing that's happened. We've Our, our increased digital load has, has added all of these little micro stresses. The second thing that's happened at the same time is that our tech habits, again, professionally and personally, have completely annihilated the biological buffers that helped us as humans to manage stress. We used to move a lot more than what we do. We used to get more sunlight. Even the way we breathe has been radically altered by our digital habits. And um, we used to connect with real people in real time um, a whole lot more than what we do. Um, so our, our, our biology is, is shifting um, and changing, but we're not designed to operate this way. So that is why I think we've seen this huge growth in burnout. Incredible. Um, you mentioned a couple of things earlier around, I think it was infobesity and dementia and all the digital digital dementia, I think it was that you mentioned as well. Meeting bloat, um, you know, all of these sorts of things that are kind of going on for people. Sort of resulting, I think, in what you describe as people operating as a low-res version of themselves. Yeah. Yeah, do you want me to? So I... I think, and I, that analogy, I think we can all relate to. Like we just feel like we're not a, a operating at peak performance. Now, I don't think we can deny the fact that we've endured a global pandemic, and that has certainly presented unique challenges. We're now facing some challenging financial times globally, so there are other confounding factors and variables at play, and it would be naive not to acknowledge those. But I think it's the way we're using technology. And again, it's in really insidious ways, ways we're often not even cognizant of. Um, but these behaviours are leaving what I call many of us ousted. I believe that our tech habits are leaving us constantly overwhelmed, under the pump, stressed, time poor, exhausted and distracted. And it's this, these, these digital behaviours that are not sustainable and this is why I think we are seeing it's one of the contributing factors to burnout because we aren't designed to operate the way that we're working. I often say we're not machines. We, we aren't machines. And the irony is that even our machinery, you know, the, the plants that we have in our operating um, rooms, um, any sort of cars, our, our phones, we provide time for maintenance. We upgrade the software. We have downtime. We have like maintenance periods, but we don't afford ourselves as humans those same sorts of luxuries. So I think, yeah, we, we have developed, and again, through no fault of our own, we're sort of being caught up in this, you know, rapid rate of change. And with the pandemic and our hybrid work, we are now more digitally dependent than we've ever been. With distributed teams, our reliance on these technologies will continue to grow. And to be honest, I, I think we're making up the rules as we go. You know, everybody's sort of looking around at each other and saying, where's the rule book? Like, yeah. how do we do this? Like, um, and, and so I think, yeah, we need time to, I guess, catch up and start to work. Again, it's not an anti-tech message. It's about, well, how can we use these technologies that are now integral for our work and personal lives, but in a way that works for us as humans.
Okay, so I love how you break this into four pillars. I love how the book is so practical and I love at the end you even provide an example of a working schedule of yours as something that, you know, people can examine and think about. But I would love you to share with us a top tip or two from each of those pillars. So perhaps if I just kick us off the first one, being establishing digital borders and boundaries. Yes. If I was to pick one tip um, that will have the biggest impact not only on your well-being but also your productivity, and it's one you're going to say, I've heard this before, Christy, it's we have to have boundaries around our sleep. Being on a blue-lit device, which our laptops, tablets and phones are, in the 60 minutes before we go to sleep, we know will not only delay the onset of our sleep, so we get into bed and we lay there and we're, I call it being tired and wired. You know, you've, you've shut the lid on your laptop, brushed your teeth and climbed into bed. We've all done that. And I'm going to acknowledge there'll be times when we still need to do that. You know, there are professional responsibilities, deadlines, crucial moments at work where we just have no other option. But if that becomes our standard operating cadence, our standing operating rhythms, it's really detrimental to our sleep. Not only does it delay the onset of sleep, we also know that it shrinks our deep and REM sleep. That is the restorative phases of our sleep cycle. So we, and that's when memory consolidation occurs. So if you want to remember important statistics or an important detail or a case study at work, that won't happen when you're not getting enough sleep. So some simple pragmatic things, come up with a digital curfew. So ideally 60 minutes before you go to sleep. Invest in blue light blocking glasses if you have to be online late at night. Um, keep your phone out of your bedroom. You know, just seeing it can be a psychological trigger to start thinking about the tricky email you're going to deal with in the morning or the complicated employee issue you're dealing with. Um, put your phone somewhere where you can't see it. If it has to come into your room, if you just can't bear the thought of not having your digital appendage, put it somewhere where you can't see it. Um, turn off the notifications. Research tells us that one in five Australian adults are woken up each night because of alerts and notifications. And we don't pick up where we were in the sleep cycle. We go back to the beginning. So that would be my top tip. Really nail your sleep because the cascading benefits are huge when we're getting good quality and quantity of sleep. Christy, I love that you picked that one. And your book, oh, I'm glad. Your book was a reminder to me because it was only um, when I read your book that I kind of went, that's it, phones are out of the bedroom again. And I've signed, I've kind of done that before and then slipped back into bad habits. So the phones, yes. all electronic devices, they're out of the room, they're getting charged elsewhere. And um, it means if I do wake up in the night, I don't have to resist the temptation of it beside my yes. bed, roll over and go back to sleep. Yeah, and I often encourage people because I know the sorts of listeners that you would have here would possibly wear a fitness tracker. So I often say, just track your sleep. Try this for five days. Implement some guardrails around your use at night and just notice, do you get longer sleep? Are you getting more deep and REM sleep? Just as a little experiment, hands down, most people who do that come back and reluctantly say, I think you were right. Like, it did make a difference. I love that, encouraging everyone to get curious. So the next one, adopt neuroproductivity principles. So basically this means we have to start to work the way our brain and body are designed within that biological blueprint. So one of the things that I encourage people to do is to set up their workday, and this I think is the silver lining of the pandemic for knowledge workers. I know that and I want to acknowledge that it doesn't apply to all sorts of employees and leaders, but for most knowledge workers, we now have much more flexibility, not only around where we work, there's a lot of talk about location flexibility, are we in the office or working from home? That's great. 
the big winner, the number one thing I think that is the silver lining is that we've now got schedule flexibility. We've got more greater flexibility around when we work. And one of the things that I talk about in the book is about mapping out our work days, particularly when we want to get that focused work done, the challenging work, the work that as leaders is the bulk of our, our sort of responsibility. But structuring our day so that we get our deep work done during what we call our chronotypes peak performance window. So your chronotype dictates, biologically dictates when you're most focused and alert. And it also dictates when you naturally fall asleep. And we generally fall into sort of three categories where either the early birds, the, the people that fire on all cylinders early in the morning, the, the people who are middle of the day kind of peak performers and the traditional workday works for them. And then we've got a cohort of people who are the night owls and they fire on all cylinders in the evening. These are your colleagues who are firing off emails at 11 o'clock at night. They're the people that dread the early birds suggesting that you have a 7.30 meeting, breakfast meeting. So the trick is to structure your day so that you do your heavy lifting, your mentally taxing work during your chronotype's peak performance time. And that is the time of the day where you have to be really diligent and build a fortress around your focus. That's when you have to turn off as many of the digital distractions and, let's face it, people distractions if we're back in the office, but as many distractions as possible so that we can start to work the way our brains and bodies are designed. Fantastic. So the next one's about disabling digital distractions. So while we stay on that theme. So they same seem really harmless, but being distracted by the ping of the email or even just the presence of your smartphone. Um, my tip here is to, that when you want to get your deep focused work done, put your phone somewhere where you cannot see it. A study from the University of Austin, Texas, found that even if our phone was on silent and face down, if it was still in our line of sight, it had a negative impact on our cognitive performance. And the researchers estimated it was about 10%. So put bluntly, seeing your phone makes you about 10% dumber. I cannot be any more direct than that. So pop it in a drawer, pop it in a, in, in a, in a bag, pop it in another room, but just put it somewhere where you can't see it. Because when we are distracted, and it doesn't matter if the ping of an email, a notif Teams notification, your colleague you know, saddling up to your desk for a quick chat, when we are distracted, research tells us it takes the average adult 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back into that deep focus state. It's called the resumption lag. So our distractions are putting a massive dent in our productivity. Wow, that's the quickest way I've ever heard to improve your intelligence by 10%. Just pop your phone. Isn't it? Oh, that's Somewhere. Incredible. Simple solution. <laughs> incredible. So the fourth area um, in the book is to unplug for rest and recovery. Let's talk about that one. This one I think is critical for leaders and aspiring leaders. We are not designed to keep working and working and working. I don't know about you, Melissa, but I have never had a genius idea or solved a complex problem in my inbox or in an Excel spreadsheet. For me, great ideas germinate when I'm in the shower, when I go for a swim, when I go for a run, in the good old-fashioned days when you go on a plane with no Wi-Fi. You know when you have holidays with no Wi-Fi and all of a sudden that, that genius idea lands. We're not designed to be plugged in, so we have to intentionally carve out time to be idle with our thoughts. Neuroscientists call it the default mode network. We used to call it daydreaming. We used to have pockets of time throughout our day where we'd be idle with our thoughts, where our mind would meander. We used to wait for the, the coffee, you know, the barista to make your coffee and we just stand there. But now 
we fill that void scrolling. You know, we used to go on a walk with no headphones, listening to audiobooks at one and a half speed or podcasts at one and a half speed. We'd just be idle with our thoughts. We used to have the commute time to sometimes decompress. And so now I think we have to just be really intentional about having pockets of time where we unplug. And it doesn't need, and in fact, I don't even recommend a digital detox. They don't work. They create a binge and purge cycle. What we know works is taking regular breaks and having regular opportunities to unplug. So you referred to those, and there's lots of different ways that people can do that rest and recovery. I mean, there were cold showers. There were all sorts of different things in there. Um, one was those piccolo tall and grande breaks that we mentioned, that I mentioned as part of the intro. On the way into this um, conversation, this podcast, I actually threw some music on and danced. I happened to pick a, a Staying Alive by the Bee Gees. Is that a piccolo tall or grande break that I had for myself? That's a piccolo, and I'm going to add that should have been recorded as part of this podcast, some of the B-roll footage, and maybe I'll challenge you. That's what you can do afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure anyone needs to see that. So, um, <laughs> well, It goes back to the fact, so the part of our brain, that the prefrontal cortex, it does all our heavy lifting. It solves problems. It thinks analytically. I liken this to being the CEO of our brain. Our prefrontal cortex has a maximum of between four and six hours a day of work. It's got a four to six hour battery life, pardon the pun. We're not designed as humans to sit down and keep going and going and going. Now, I'm not saying you should only do a four to six hour workday. I know that's unrealistic advice. Some of our other time on our workday would be doing what Cal Newport talks about as shallow work, the less demanding, less taxing type of work. But we are not designed to just keep going and going and going. And in fact, all of the research on burnout says that the most effective strategy to beat burnout is by taking what I call in the book piccolo breaks, mm. micro breaks, two to 10 minutes, several times throughout the day of things that you find restorative, closing your eyes, going out in nature, getting a cup of tea. Um, if you like it, bringing the washing in, um, getting a friend, a colleague and walking to the local park, you know, just little things that we can do. The research, Dr. Adam Fraser did some research on the benefits of our annual leave. And I often call that our grande break. So taking, you know, an extended leave of absence for a couple of days or weeks, as we often do. We certainly reap physical and psychological benefits from taking annual leave. But the tragic news is that those benefits are said to last two to three weeks. Right. And then we're back in the grind. Whereas those piccolo breaks are almost like the, the charging, you know, when your phone's getting into the red zone and you charge it up and off you go and you're relieved again. We need to be doing that constantly throughout our days as well. You know, you just made me think of the fact that often my phone will run down and be in the red zone. My daughter grabs the phone and she throws it into battery save mode. Is that, you know, is that what we're doing with ourselves, sort of throwing ourselves into battery save mode all the time? What's going on there? We are, but there are things that we can do that, so there are things we could certainly do that would plug us in and recharge us, you know, taking a break, getting out in nature, closing our eyes, um, having some cold water exposure, um, human connection. Research tells us even that just 40 seconds in nature will drop our cortisol levels. So there's really simple things we can do, but I think there are other things we can do in that power safe mode that will stop us from getting to that red zone. You know, shrinking our virtual meetings. We know from brain scans that uh, fatigue sets in in virtual meetings around that 30 to 40 minute mark. So some of the work I'm doing with teams at the moment in their, helping them establish their digital guardrails is we're coming up with our digital norms, practices and principles. 
are our default meetings now 25 minutes instead of 30 and 50 instead of a 60 minute? Um, are we discouraging people from multitasking? You know, Microsoft data tells us that the majority of people on Teams calls are triaging their inboxes and Teams messages. Like we are just working against and in doing so draining our human batteries. What about the people who say I don't have time to take a break? So we have something, again, this has always been the case in our biology, we have something called an ultradian rhythm. An ultradian rhythm means we go through a peak and a trough roughly every 90 minutes. So a 90-minute sort of peak period, and then we have roughly a 20-minute trough. Now, you can resist that, you can ignore that and keep pushing through, but what we know is that you're, if you don't take a break or you don't do something restorative, now you do not have to have a 20-minute rest. Some people will hear that and say, Christy, I'd never get any work done if I work for 90 minutes and then laid on my yoga mat for 20 minutes. Like That's never going to happen. Some of that 20 minutes definitely needs to be restorative, but two to five to 10 minutes can, is enough. Some of that other 20-minute period could be allocated to doing some shallow work, some of the less taxing, more administrative, easy types of tasks. Maybe it's a phone call, maybe it's triaging your emails. But we need to adhere to that because if we don't, our next peak will be significantly lower in terms of our output and it will not last as long. So it becomes a bit of a discipline where we have to say, I'm going to perform in a better way if I start to work in what I call a sprint, not a marathon. Or I use the term now digital dash. We do a quick digital dash and then we have some recovery and another quick dash. And the harsh reality is we can only in an ideal world, and no one's day ever really looks like this, but if we were doing all of our peak performance techniques, we really could possibly only have four of those dashes a day. And that would be a really huge level of output. Four of those sort of 90-minute sprints and then having some recovery is what will set us up for peak performance. Fantastic. Now, can I just ask your final tip then for senior professional women to thrive? It would be that we have to see rest as a responsibility and not as a reward. In the book, I use the analogy of peak performance pit stops and this idea that race cars don't nowadays don't actually ever need to pull into a pit stop and take a pit stop. The technology and the machinery and the engines are so sophisticated that they could finish the entire multitude of laps that they do in a racetrack. But the reason they pull in to take a pit stop is that they want to finish the race in an optimal state. Now, we may not be going to a finish line, but as leaders, especially female leaders, we want to achieve peak performance. So how can we structure our days? By investing in our rest, not seeing rest as something that we save up for our annual leave. It's not something we do on Sunday afternoon when we've ticked off everything off the to-do list. Rest is absolutely critical for peak performance and you cannot outperform that need. It's also the thing, if I'm really honest, that I grapple with. I can know this science and I can know the research, but it's hard when we have um, you know, we, we've almost seen stress as a proxy for our success, yeah, that being yeah. burnt out and frazzled and busy is a marker of good leadership. I think we have to challenge those norms and they are big things to do. Mm, fantastic. I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I know that people are going to take so much more than five tips out of this conversation. And I just also want to really congratulate you on releasing the book. I mean, it's a, a massive task to sit down and get all of this um, out there for us. And I just want to encourage everyone to read it because it really is could you believe, absolutely jam-packed. I mean, we've got so much this morning and yet there is so much more to it. So 
Christy, thank you so much for joining with thank us. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you for your kind words. I so appreciate that. And I love hearing you're already implementing some of these things with your piccolo breaks and being physically active. So you're certainly nailing a lot of the micro habits in the book. I love it. I love also another one that you recommended in there that I do regularly is meditate. And I think that's beautiful. Yeah. So, can I can so. I say as someone who was very skeptical, I thought I, I I don't own a yoga mat. I don't need to do meditation. And when I kept looking at the research and science as a researcher, I thought it is so compelling. I'm going to have to give this a go, but it won't work for me. And it did. And the good news is 10 to 12 minutes is what the science is sort of saying per day at the moment. So it's not a hugely onerous amount of time. It's not something really cumbersome and the rewards are mammoth. So I love that you're doing that one too. Fantastic. Well, have a brilliant day and thank you for joining. Likewise. Thank you.